Will you please remain standing and of reverence for God's word. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark 10, 46 through 52. And they came to Jericho, and he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd. And Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we spent several weeks away from the gospel according to Mark. So I'm excited to return with this short text with you all tonight. Four or five weeks ago, Ryan preached about children, both from chapters 9 and 10. He made some really clear observation about the nature of children uh, and their need from their parents for really all things, for food, for clothing, for safety, basically to live. And that's certainly true for our one-year-old son, Bennett, our youngest. He requires us to do pretty much everything for him in order for him to survive. That's also true for our three-year-old, Micah, only he doesn't believe it. He can now put his Velcro shoes on by himself, but for months he would say when we would try to put his shoes on him, I can do it! Maybe you parents remember these days from your smaller children. And he, we would sit and watch as he would not be able to pull the Velcro apart or when he got his foot in, the tongue would get all cattywampus. Uh, I just said cattywampus. Uh, and then he'd finally say, I need help. And we would say, that's what I thought, son. Uh, or he says, I can do it, as he misses the toothbrush altogether and squirts toothpaste all over the bathroom counter. He says, I can do it when he's trying to undress for the bath and he gets his head and his arms all tied into a knot, doing a fairly simple procedure that all of us can do of taking one shirt off. He is unable to do this as well. He can open the refrigerator, but he can't reach the milk. He can open the pantry, but he can't reach the goldfish. Bennett, our one-year-old, and Micah, our three-year-old, are both equally dependent on us, his parents, for survival. One knows it. The other probably knows it, he just won't admit it. Well, our text tonight is all about a right recognition of need. Some commentators suggest that Mark carelessly put our text for this evening um, out of order. He, He was careless in where he placed it where he did. He should have put it earlier in the first three chapters, right alongside the other healing stories of Jesus. But Mark is no dummy. He places the story of blind Bartimaeus exactly where it should be. He's contrasting the wrong understandings of discipleship which precede it in chapters 9 and 10. And he is exemplifying what a true disciple looks like as described in chapters 9 and 10. Before looking at this more closely together, let's ask for the Lord's help. As he is the one who has assembled us together under his word. 
Father, we pray that you might show us our great, great need this evening. I pray that for those of us who may understand theologically of our great need, we might actually know it. That we might sense our desperation and cry out to you, Lord, have mercy. We pray that the word of God might do the work of God through the spirit of God in the people of God tonight for your glory and for our good. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, amen. All right, let's look at this in three parts tonight. And first, let's look at Bartimaeus' pleading cry, a pleading cry, verses 46 through 48. Let's read these few verses again together real quickly. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Well, we've been tracing throughout the gospel according to Mark how Jesus has been on the way, on the way, on the road, on the way which is Mark showing us how to interpret these stories in light of the looming cross. And Dr. Carson showed us on Sunday how Luke does something similar in chapter 9 of his Gospels by saying that Jesus' face was set toward Jerusalem. So this is all true. But it's also true that lots of people, not just Jesus, but lots of people were on the way to Jerusalem. Passover was coming. And Passover was a time of an annual pilgrimage for Jews. They would be coming to Jerusalem from all over the region. Galilean Jews, like Jesus, would come from the north. They would bypass Samaria, uh, putting themselves into the wilderness and cross back over the Jordan at Jericho. By the way, another guy named Jesus, or the Old Testament equivalent, Yeshua or Joshua, led the people back into the land of God's presence at this place about 1,500 years prior. And these people, this crowd surrounding Jesus would be singing and celebrating as they made this final uphill climb to Jerusalem. And not just singing any songs, but the same songs every year. We call these songs Psalms of Ascent. Songs sung as the people are ascending up the last hill to Jerusalem. Let's look at a few of these psalms together. You'll find them uh, in the book of Psalms, Chapters 120 to 134, basically the very middle of your Bible. So keep a finger in Mark and flip to the middle of your Bible. You'll notice, at least in the ESV translation, that these are noted under the chapter heading as songs of ascents. Songs that were to be sung as the people were ascending to Jerusalem. Let's look first at Psalm 122, the first five verses. So these are, peop- these are songs that the people would have memorized They would sing them every year as they came to Jerusalem. They would sing them every year from childhood until they died. So these were the same 15 psalms. Psalm 122, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up. The tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. And the next one, Psalm 123. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. 
Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Now, I don't know if these songs would have been sung in the same chronological order that we have them in our Bibles. We'd have to ask Ron that, but I'd like to imagine that these two psalms, Psalms 122 and 123, are being sung by hundreds of people as they come streaming out of Jericho, making their final climb to Jerusalem, including Jesus, by the way. We kind of like to think of Jesus as kind of just this stoic, unemotionless guy, right? But he, no doubt, knowing, even knowing that his impending death waited for him at the top of this hill, was singing alongside the crowds, probably dancing along the way with them, singing the songs that he has sung many, many, many times since his childhood. But perhaps these two songs, Psalms 122 and 123, are being sung. Songs about the house of David and songs about mercy to God's servants who look on him are being sung as the crowd passes by a blind man on the side of the road. Now we know next to nothing about this man, but it's interesting that Mark gives us his name, Bartimaeus. His name means son of Timaeus. We see that in our text, right? It's the father, his father is Timaeus. But Bar was an Aramaic way of saying son of, just like Simon Bar Jonah. So this is Bar Timaeus, son of Timaeus. And other than Lazarus, I think... Bar Timaeus is the only named person in the gospel accounts whom Jesus heals. This is entirely speculative, but many scholars presume that Mark names him here because Bar Timaeus had later become a leader of the present day church. So when readers heard his name, they thought, oh, oh, we're talking about that Bartimaeus, that, that church leader in Jerusalem or wherever he might have been at the time, that Bartimaeus. Anyway, that Bartimaeus is sitting on the side of the road as the crowd passes by. And this is a pretty good time and place to camp out and ask for money. The crowds are on the home stretch of one of the most joyful times of the year. They would likely be generous to those asking for charity and for help. And we don't know what experience Bartimaeus had had with Jesus, if he had heard him teach at some point or if he had just heard of the other miraculous healings, or what. But it seems that he's come to some pretty firm theological conclusions about who Jesus of Nazareth is. The blind man, sitting on the side of the road, begins to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. For those who know their Bibles pretty well, this whole son of David thing isn't that surprising. It's a very, very common theme throughout the New Testament. A very common theme even in the other gospel accounts. Matthew, for instance, says in the very first verse of his gospel account, Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And then he's going to give an entire genealogy basically just to prove that Jesus is a son of David, the son of David. Matthew will then, not counting all the more subtle allusions throughout his gospel account, will explicitly use this phrase, son of David, seven other times. We already saw a song of ascent 
referencing the house of David, but let's flip back one more time. Look at Psalm 132. Start in verse 11. The Lord swore to David a sure oath. This is a song that's being sung as the crowds are going up to Jerusalem, okay? So David is on the lips of the people. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him... His crown will shine. This is one of countless Old Testament examples where God promises to give the eternal reign and rule of his kingdom to a son of David. So if you're familiar with the Old Testament, but unfamiliar with the the New Testament, unfamiliar with the Gospel of Mark, say that you're a person in Papua New Guinea and you're reading through Mark for the first time, you know nothing of the New Testament, and you get to chapter 10, And this blind man says, son of David, by the way, for the first time in the gospel of Mark, you read this and say, wait, wait, did he? I I think he just, I think he did. I think that blind beggar just called Jesus of Nazareth, God's anointed and forever king. This is big. This is a big moment in this gospel account. And that's exactly what's going on. For 10 chapters, we have had plenty of people who have come into very close and intimate contact with Jesus. He has healed many. He has taught multitudes. He has provided for thousands. He has cared for countless. He has led his own disciples. And nobody has called him a son of David until this blind man. Blind Bartimaeus sees better and more clearly than anyone else in this story up until this point. We've already seen with the other healing stories from these earlier chapters that Jesus is fulfilling and bringing in the hope of the kingdom of God as was seen by Isaiah. So perhaps Bartimaeus wants in on this messianic kingdom of God that begins to reverse the curse of Adam. Or perhaps he's heard the crowds singing Psalm 123, As they go by where they're singing, our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. And he cries out very loudly to Jesus. And what happens next is not all that surprising. Verse 48, and many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. I say that's not that surprising because this should be familiar. If you look back toward the beginning of this chapter, chapter 10, verse 13, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. We're not sure why the crowds are rebuking Bartimaeus, but they are certainly following the pattern of those who deem who is worthy to come to Jesus and who is not. Surely Jesus doesn't have time to stop for beggars. Surely Jesus doesn't have time for children the least of these, he has places to go and things to accomplish. 
Perhaps even if the disciples really understood what Jesus had to accomplish at the top of this hill, they might have said, hey, hey, uh, sorry, Barty, Uh, he's got the sins of the world to atone for. Maybe next time, buddy, Uh, but we got a tight schedule to keep. We're on the move, right? But they don't even understand that, and they still assume that this man is not worthy of calling out to Jesus. We know that the disciples and others from John 9 thought blindness and, blindness and other physical ailments likely would have been the result of his sin or his parents' sin. This is God's judgment in their life, most would have thought during these times. So perhaps they're thinking, quiet, you sinner. You who are abandoned and judged by God. He has no time for you. But in the spirit of Psalm 123, our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Bartimaeus yells all the louder. I mean, to even hear the guy in the first place as he's sitting on the side of the road, as there is essentially a parade going by, is pretty impressive, right? He must have been yelling pretty loudly in the beginning. Then they tell him to be quiet, and then he yells louder. Like Jacob on the banks of the Jabbok saying, I will not let go until you bless me. Bartimaeus is persistent. Bartimaeus has an accurate understanding of his plight, of his need. Culturally, in his day, he would have been entirely dependent upon the generosity of others. Not unlike my one-year-old and my three-year-old who need me to provide everything for them, but unlike James and John, who we saw earlier in this chapter, and unlike the rich young man who came before them, Bartimaeus actually recognizes his immense need. Son of David, God's anointed Messiah and King of his people, have mercy upon me. I am in great need. Meaning something like, Look, I, I know that I'm not deserving of anything. I know that whatever I have is because of sheer generosity. My sins are great and I have no right to claim anything from you. But in light of that, son of David, have mercy. The pleading cry of Bartimaeus should be our daily cry as well. The fundamental prayer of every Christian should be that which we have already sung tonight. Lord, have mercy. We are daily at, in rebellion against him. We are deserving of nothing. Even the next beat of our heart, we are not deserving of. Lord, have mercy on us. Our great sin. Bartimaeus' heart should be our heart as we prepare for and later come to the table where we, like Bartimaeus, should say to the Lord, I know I am not deserving of anything. I know that whatever I have is because of your sheer generosity. My sins are great, and I have no right to claim anything from you, but in light of all that, son of David, have mercy on me. And if Bartimaeus' cry should be our cry, let's see how Jesus responds to him and to us as well. Verses 49 through 51, a heartening invitation. If we've been paying attention throughout Mark, especially the previous two chapters, Jesus' response should not be all that surprising. 
Verse 49, Jesus stopped and said, call him. I need to remind you that we are in the midst of a parade. There was singing. There was likely tambourines and lyres and drums and other instruments. And Jesus hears him and stops. And likely the crowds with him stop and the music just kind of, like, (laughs) why is he stopping? But this is encouraging to us. You realize that however loud the praises and music were on that day on that Jericho road, they are nothing to the praises and music of the saints and angels that are coming to the Lord Jesus right now as he sits on the throne. And yet, even while this music and praise is coming and filling his ears right now, he is attentive to his people. He hears the cries of his people. He is not annoyed by those who cry out to him. He's not bothered by them. He's not thinking, oh great, here they come again. More requests. Here comes that guy in Albuquerque always bothering me. This is not the Lord Jesus. He hears and he stops, full of compassion and eager to heal. Verse 49, and Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. Jesus likely hears and sees Bartimaeus. He stops, and then he likely says quietly to a disciple near him, hey, go get him. Call him. And some in the crowd, who just a couple of seconds earlier were rebuking Bartimaeus, say, hey, take heart. Kind of like uh, we might say, hey man, uh, it's okay. He'll see you. Get on up. In verse 50, throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Dr. Carson explained to us on Saturday afternoon in teaching the Good Samaritan that a great proportion of one's money would be towards clothing. Basically, the poor would spend their money on two things, food and clothing. That's why the robbers in the parable of the Good Samaritan would have taken the man's clothing as well. It was a valuable commodity. They left him naked. So it's no small thing that Bartimaeus, a blind man, the poorest of the poor, a beggar, would throw off his cloak, possibly the only thing he owned, to see Jesus. Compare this to the rich young man earlier in the chapter, who Jesus showed that his love of material possessions was just the thing that would keep him from entering the kingdom of God. Bartimaeus couldn't give one rip about his possessions if those things were the things that would slow him from getting to Jesus. By the way, we don't see Bartimaeus ever think about his cloak again, do we? He doesn't get it. He doesn't return to it. He doesn't care. His material possessions mean nothing to him. Mark seems to be building a case for what a true disciple will look like. So what happens next? Verse 51, Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. If we're beginning to think that we should be comparing Bartimaeus to others who have come before him, this seals the deal. Jesus says to him, What do you want me to do for you? Is this familiar familiar at all? Earlier in the chapter, James and John say that they want Jesus to do whatever they ask of him. And in 1036, look at it. We read, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? The exact same question worded identically to Bartimaeus. 
The Zebedee boys say that they want to sit at Jesus' right and left hand. And Ryan showed us a couple of weeks ago the arrogant audacity of this request. Zero humility, zero thought of others, zero thought of even Jesus, only their own self-promotion. But what's interesting in Bartimaeus' request is that it's no less audacious. He wants to see, and this is no small feat. And even the way he asks it is pretty confident, is it? In fact, he doesn't even ask. Similarly to James and John, he just tells Jesus what he wants. Let me recover my sight. There aren't any if-you-can caveats like the father of the boy with the unclean spirit in chapter 9. He knows Jesus can do it. Jesus just told him to make a request, so he does. If Jesus asked this question on consecutive occasions, I don't think it's too far of a stretch to put ourselves on the receiving end of this question as well. In fact, one commentator on this section says this, what do you want me to do for you is the most important question God ever asks us and the one to which we most frequently give the wrong answer. What do you want God to do for you? What do you expect of him? A prosperous life? A successful life? An influential life? A recognized life? A healthy life? Just a really fun and pleasurable life? Perhaps you don't shoot that high, just a carefree and easy life. That's what I want from you, God. Too often we consciously or subconsciously want these from God. And like James and John, we demand these things from God. And then when we don't get them, we get angry at God. And we shake our fists to the heavens. How could you? This is what I wanted from you and you didn't give it to me. All the while ignoring our greatest need. And he is coming eagerly to fill. But could you imagine if blind Bartimaeus came to Jesus? Jesus had just request, or told him to make a request. Request anything. What do you, what do you want from me? And Bartimaeus says like, uh, I don't know. Uh, how about a pony? Or I think I'd like to be the mayor of Jericho. That'd be super. Or just, I don't know. How about wealth beyond belief? That's, that sounds good. Everyone would say, Barty, are you crazy? He just, he just said you could have anything. You could, you could have seen. You could see again. And he asked for a pony. What are you doing? Bartimaeus is very aware of his need, and he is confident that Jesus can heal him. He's like my one-year-old. My one-year-old is hungry. He lets us know, not really with words, more of just yelps, Right? But he knows that he will not eat apart from our giving him food. But he's also confident that we'll actually feed him what he needs. He wouldn't yelp or cry if we hadn't given him food before, would he? He knows that crying out actually produces a response from his parents. He's confident in our caring for him. Not candy every time, right? The older they get, can I have candy? Well, no. But I want it. Well, no, that's, you don't need that right now. But we do give our, our, we give our boys what they need, don't we? What we do for our children, we should expect 
no differently from our Father in heaven. Now, as we've seen throughout Mark, physical brokenness is also often a symbolic pointer to a greater and deeper spiritual brokenness. So when Jesus heals someone externally, he gives us a glimmer of how he is healing internally as well. So let's see the result of Bartimaeus' confident request. A surprising result. Verse 52, And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now this is surprising. For, we'll see. Jesus heals him. And this time, he, not dramatically, not by like spitting in some mud and like wiping it all over his face like we've seen him do earlier. He doesn't even touch him. He basically just says, okay, you can see. And Bartimaeus says, all right, I can see, right? That's it. That's all we get. Mark's brevity here seems to suggest that it, this story isn't necessarily here uh, to emphasize the healing aspect of it. If that's what Mark intended, he likely would have put this story in the first three chapters with the other healing stories. The emphasis on this story really does seem to be on discipleship. Jesus essentially tells this guy, hey man, uh, you can now go your way because uh, you can see now because you're faith in me. Go, go home, wherever that is. Go back to Jericho or wherever. Have a good day. And then what does Bartimaeus do? Something surprising. He follows him. He doesn't go back home. He doesn't go back to wherever he's from. He follows him on the way. Do you see that? The last three words of our text here, on the way. He follows Jesus on the way. He falls in line right behind Jesus. A healing encounter with Jesus, which is followed by a life unchanged, just will not do for Bartimaeus. A momentary healing or encounter with Jesus and then going back home, Never to see or hear from him again? That that won't cut it for him. Perhaps you would become aware of Paul's letter to the Philippians a couple decades later where Paul wrote, Philippians 3, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Perhaps Bartimaeus might have heard that read aloud and say, yeah, that's exactly right. That Paul guy, he's telling my story. That's exactly why I followed him. I wanted to share in his power and his sufferings. I wanted all of it. I want to know Jesus, follow in him, share with him his power, his sufferings. Do you know of your weakness? Do you know of your need? And follow Jesus on the way as a result of that? Like really, As Americans, it's really easy for us to think that we don't really have many weaknesses. And if we're really honest, we don't really have that many needs, right? If we do recognize our weaknesses and needs, we act like we don't have any. Acting like we're strong enough to do anything, good enough at our jobs to earn what we need and buy whatever else we want, healthy enough with enough good doctors around us that we don't really ever need to worry about our health, busy enough to, think that, to, to not have to ever sit down and really think about our shortcomings and our brokenness. It's very easy for us to go many decades without ever giving serious reflection on our great need. You know what we're doing though, right? 
like a petulant three-year-old. I can do it! I can do it! As we miss the toothbrush altogether and squirt toothpaste all over the bathroom counter. Our desire for independence is not just a lack of, or not just a, a mark of immaturity. Just like my three-year-old yelling at me, I can do it, is not just a product of him being three. He and I share the same sinful, fallen condition of the desire for independence. Our desire for independence is flat out rebellion against the God who has created us for himself. Our shaking our fists saying, I need no one but myself. And like we sometimes do with our three-year-old, I'm fairly sure God says, fine, just try it by yourself. We'll see. Lewis says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Those who will not recognize their great need, the Lord Jesus sends away like the rich young man. But those who recognize their great need, the Lord Jesus hears, he calls, he heals, he forgives. Perhaps Bartimaeus with the rest of the crowd continued singing the songs of ascent as they made their way to Jerusalem on the way, singing perhaps like never before, singing Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities.